News. 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 New York City. FAQ NYC podcast getting more and more interesting by the minute. FAQ. It's FAQ NYC. I'm Harry Siegel here with a full good gang. Christina Greer, Katie Honan, Alex Brooklyn. Uh, it's Wednesday afternoon. Eric Adams is doing a presser shortly. Uh, I've got to run to cover something else, so we're going to gab and jump right in. A few of the big things to discuss. Uh, we have uh, Kathy Hochul's extremely uh, generous campaign year-friendly budget with all this extra money from the feds and casino gambling maybe coming to New York. Uh, Tish James at 11.30 p.m., for whatever reason, uh, dropped all sorts of tea about the uh, Trumps in new legal filings that are intended to compel them to uh, testify and give up documents that they have not. However, spilling this much tea strongly suggests, and at this point, like, you know, prior to even getting to a trial, suggests that there's not much of a criminal case here. I think that her civil case may not may not be so sturdy. Lots more to talk about. Uh, Alex, I, I know you wanted to bring up a topic that has been on New Yorkers' minds as, as the subway-pushing nightmare has uh, occurred again at Times Square. What's happening with that? Oof. I mean, you know, we've got a city pretty much like it having a crisis of terror every time this happens. And uh, when after... Marshall Simon, a 65-year-old schizophrenic man whose sister said he needed more resources, needed to be hospitalized, um, who also was out on a parole violation, pushed a 40-year-old woman, Ms. Go, uh, into the train. She never saw it coming. And obviously, he's in the throes of an acute uh, attack. Um, People are afraid. People are afraid, and they're not sure what to do. I don't think what a lot of people realizing it, realize is that the warehousing the mentally ill in jails and prisons is not like an option anymore. Even if like bail reform went away magically and uh, we could start doing it, I think every, especially our new mayor, our new Manhattan DA, Alvin Bragg, anybody who wants a career for more than five years knows that they can't kick this can down the road anymore. Like it's going to keep coming up. The reason why we're in such a crisis point now, not only is a loss of hospital beds, but because we warehoused these people in jails and prisons, because what happens when you go to jail and prison, you get out, you get out without resources, without a treatment plan. And that's why we have a mentally ill crisis in the city right now. So I think actually Adams is like going in some good directions on this one. His new uh, health commissioner um it used to be the ceo of fountain house which you know created all these clubhouses and you know t- the he espouses to take a non non police approach to you know um first contact with emotionally disturbed persons and eric adams noted that this happened while there were police officers as there pretty much always are in times square and of course that that points to how there isn't a way to simply uh, police ourselves out of this set of issues. I will say a lot of people who are, you know, ringing the alarm bells um, and, you know, they don't want to hear like a softer, uh, oh, we need social services. They, they're worried that, you know, maybe they're worried we're caring too much for the mentally ill, but uh, 
it is for everyone's quality of life that these social infrastructures are put in place. And I think people are finally realizing that. Bill de Blasio, who a lot of people started blaming for increase in crime and a perceived uh, a decrease in quality of life, uh, just announced um, in a video outside his Park Slope house that he's not going to be running for governor. I believe he still has a whole bunch of legal bills mm-hmm. he owes money mm-hmm. about. Um, wh- what happens to this guy now? Well, first off, shout out to all the journalists who have been working on this story who now have to scrap all of their work. Um, You know, guys, my question for you all has always been, who is the base for de Blasio? We know that he still has, you know, solid numbers with Black New Yorkers. But beyond that, I mean, and beyond the five boroughs, who's interested in Bill de Blasio? We know that the people in Long Island talk about this man as though he's been their mayor for eight years and they despise him by and large, and he's not even their mayor. The Westchester folks, same thing. And he doesn't really have any roots upstate. Um, he was too busy in Iowa and New Hampshire whenever he did leave the city. So it was a genuine question, not just who would be voting for him, but also who would want to give him money in the sense that who are your real donors when you're not in a sitting seat to sort of trade favors the way politicians do. So I'm, I'm just, I never understood his path. I thought Jumani kind of took a more, it seemed, authentic, progressive mantle. Tom Swazi swipes from, you know, Kathy Hochul on the right. But I just, my genuine question was like, who who's looking for Bill de Blasio? And my answer always seemed to be no one. Hey, well, yeah. Is there like a congressional <laughs> district or any anywhere else he could reappear? Or, or is this the end of the road? It's. It seems like at the end of. I mean, I think. Sing it, Katie. Sing it. You know you want to. Uh, (laughs) I did say I was going to sing. Although we've come to the end of the road, still I can't let go. There's a congressional district somewhere out there for me. Ooh. We've gone off the rails. I think. Um. Makes me think out out with the boys, up with the two men. Anyway, now I'm completing two mayors. You know, I don't think there was a support for him. And I think the congressional, you know, he had to congressional, he had to file his campaign stuff on January 15th. And, you know, we saw it was not a lot of money. I mean, people still donated to him. A crypto billionaire, Brock Pierce, he of the airplane that took Eric Adams to Somos in Puerto Rico, Brock Pierce fame, um, and young Gordon Bombay and the Mighty Ducks. But yeah, he gave to him. So he was still raking in some money, but certainly not enough to run, which I think obviously probably made that decision for him about what he's going to do. But I don't know. I mean, he said he's committed to public service. And in an email he sent out after his video announcing he wasn't running for governor, he said, stay tuned. Um, He still, as you point out, has significant legal bills um, that he hasn't said how he's going to pay. Um, But yeah, I mean, I think for now, this is maybe the end of Bill de Blasio's career as a politician. Anything can happen. He's not that old. Uh, so it's not like he he's going to retire and he still is clamoring for that. Um, but yeah, I think he still has much. He's still living in a hotel because he's fixing his house in Park Slope. He's got to pay those bills. He's got to figure things out. Kathy Hochul, speaking of money, hot damn, she raised $21 million. That's like $6,000 an hour every hour of every day in the last filing period. And she hasn't broken down how much of that came from small donors, 
So it's a safe bet in New York system where you can give like 50 grand at a pop, but a lot of this is coming from, from big players. Does, does that create any sort of vulnerability for her at this point, or does she just seem to be on a glide path uh, from, from the polling and the fundraising? Well, I mean, I think people always, you know, go after fundraising, especially when you need to sort of poke holes in your opponent, right? Do you have big donors? You know, she's been talking about some infrastructure projects. You know, are these going to be construction people? You know, like, where are they coming from? Is it from out of state? People who are excited that New York finally has a female governor. So I think that there's going to be some scrutiny. I also think, you know, obviously Tom Swazi and maybe even Jamani will try and link her to the Cuomo administration. Essentially, you were in lockstep with Cuomo for seven plus years, and now you've moved away from him, but there wasn't a real vocal outcry when you were his lieutenant governor. So I think going into some of those debates as they start gearing up, there'll be some critiques, but it definitely feels like the winds of change are with Kathy Hochul, as evidenced by her fundraising skills, but also, you know, there are lots of organizations and unions who like to stay the course with her. Um, She hasn't been an unmitigated disaster thus far, and I think people are sort of willing to see how it shakes out. I am curious to see how much of a right to moderate to conservative uh, base of the Democratic Party that Swazi siphons off, um, if people are even interested in what he's selling. Because, I mean, there's certain things that he says that sound, you know, a little Cuomo-esque continuation. Um, And I think he, you know, is a proxy for, like, white maleness. Um, So whenever you have a candidate who's a female candidate going against a candidate of color, oftentimes there's a white male who feels the need to step in just to sort of serve that role because there's some people who can only vote for white men and he's more than willing to volunteer to be that person. You know, it really helps you raise $21 million, of course, is getting to put out a $216 billion budget. Mm-hmm. With, uh, with Swazi, one interesting thing I think he's raised, and this might be muscle memory from the last time he tried to run for governor and some of the scandals of that era, is that uh, Hochul has been flying all around the state, uh, including for what what appear to be basically uh, political trips. And of course, there's sort of a long history of uh, scandals involving governors and that sort of a transportation. But so far, there doesn't seem to be much traction there. Uh, Jumani, who, who... Without Tom there, Swazi would be the only other significant candidate in the race, has raised, uh, let me see, I don't have the number right in front of me, but it's something like $222,000. So, I mean, you're talking about like orders of magnitude difference and some basic questions about whether or not he's going to be able to, you know, pay a staff over the course of a campaign in the remaining uh, five months, uh, like let alone go up on TV at that pace. It just does seem striking to me that we have this much of a uh, of a monoculture and this much of a call for continuity. So, like uh, uh, Cuomo White, in a lot of ways, um, no, 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 no harassment, none of the sex issues, none of the bullying, but not a dramatic change in course. And New Yorkers from the polling so far seem really comfortable with that. Uh, somewhat to my surprise, shifting into the city, uh, Chrissy, what's up with uh, the Adams family? And Brother Bernard. (laughs) Brother Bernard. So I've been thinking a lot about this because, you know, I'm trying to let Adams get his sea legs. I'm trying to let him adjust. It's only been two plus weeks. So, you know, I've definitely, I wrote some articles for the Griot. I've been pretty vocal about, you know, your brother, Phil Banks. You know, I have some thoughts on that. You know, the missteps. I just want him to sort of clean up his 
his communication with us as residents of the city, like, because I feel like I know men like Eric Adams, I understand the intent, but also that's not what you said. The thing with Bernard, who's, you know, now not going to make a quarter of a million dollars, looks like he'll only make 210. There are two things that have been troubling me. So Eric Adams, Mayor Adams, seems to be saying now he needs his brother in that position because he trusts his brother and he needs him there for safety reasons. Which really makes me wonder, is the NYPD that dangerous? Like, do you know something that we don't know? Like, do you think that these people are so, like, racist and crazy that, like, you are in danger from your former colleagues, that you need your brother and essentially your best friend there as your eyes and ears? If so, like, we need to rip this institution out from the root to the tip. I mean, Or are you just, hmm? I just said, I mean, dot, dot, I mean, dot. Right. Maybe we should. <laughs> but I mean, so like on the one hand, are you trying to justify this $210,000 salary for your brother by saying, I, I just need someone close? And, you know, we know that police officers, they see things. We don't know if he's going to be going to Jersey. We don't know who's coming in and out of Gracie Mansion. But also, though, if you are, if if you do fear for your life the way you sort of posited and you need your brother there, then that makes me worried to interact with the NYPD in any capacity if the mayor doesn't even feel safe. And we know that he's had a long history of being an insider and outsider. So I'm interested to see how that shakes out. Um, you know, obviously nepotism always feels a little Trumpian. Trump obviously isn't the first person to have nepotism. You know, de Blasio, Bloomberg, Giuliani, lots of people. It's a family affair. I think the price tag is what, you know, sort of had a few people clutching their pearls. Because a lot of family members tend to be volunteer basis, even though they make money on the back end, they don't necessarily make city money and city pensions. Um, and that that sort of causes things. And then one other sort of minor point, I will say, SNL, you know, of course, 30 people must have <laughs> sent you all the clip of Eric Adams being played. What was that? Chris Red on mm-hmm. SNL. Um, I have some issues with SNL because I think that they fall behind on race constantly. What I didn't like about that portrayal, there were a lot of things that Eric Adams straight up said. And, you know, like, I get it. But I I really thought that there was like a hypersexualization of Eric Adams, as they do with a lot of their black characters. Yeah. It actually was like out of left field. And I was like, of all the things that we can say about Eric Adams, actually, there's never been an accusation of during the campaign season or recently at all about him being this like lecherous kind of like hump machine, the way they sort of threw it in there. And I, I just felt like that's what stood out for me. I know it didn't stand out for a lot of people, but I was like, for someone who doesn't know Eric Adams, there were a lot of things that were factual in that portrayal. But then there were a lot of things where it's just like, why does SNL always choose this sort of like cheap, low hanging fruit when it comes to their impersonations of black people, where it's always this hypersexualized nonsense? They did it with Leslie Jones all the time and like nebbish white boys, you know, sort of afraid of her like sexual prowess. Yeah. I felt like they were doing that with Adams and I was like, ugh, you all bore me. Even the, my mom was like, oh, is his spokesperson a woman? I'm like, no, (laughs) that woman was nobody. But maybe that even played into it. Um, Mm -hmm. uh, Yeah, I I agree with you on that. I mean, he had a good sense of humor about it. So, which I try to imagine anyone else having a good sense of humor about something like that. I know some people have not enjoyed being parodied on SNL, but um, I was asleep when it was on. So I don't stay up for SNL anymore, but... (laughs) I did wake up to text about it. <laughs> I mean, in a world in a world where it's really hard to find good politicians who haven't been accused of sexual assault, um, <laughs> right? Know, I, I just you know. I didn't understand why you're putting that out there. Was like, but he actually is relatively clean on that front. So there are other things that you can make funny. I just didn't understand why we had to go like the sex route. SNL 
to be very fair to them, it's not just about black people. They generally do low hanging fruit and like sort of sort of lousy broad jokes. Um, and this absolutely translates into uh, how they handle uh, race and those sorts of characters as well. I think from Adam's perspective, you know, as somebody who said, I'm the new face of the Democratic Party, that having, you know, a caricatured version of him on the show is is like a certain marker of uh, of, 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 of accomplishment that, that you've hit. And that some of the stuff you're talking about, swagger in particular, they're trying to translate and express, so even though as they're doing this. And I, I agree, I thought a, a, a sort of crude and clumsy fashion and one that doesn't line up with this character. Back to fear and cops for just one second. Eric Adams, a couple of days ago, after the subway shoving, said, uh, I'm concerned about the perception of fear. Um, he got hit hard on the cover of the New York Post, which has generally been in his corner for that. And then came back and uh, took it back and said, no, New Yorkers are, are afraid. I feel it when I'm on the trains and this is what I'm going to change. So I'm, I'm curious, Katie, like, do you think this is worrisome that, 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 that Adams is speaking loosely? Is it is it a good sign that he's, you know, taking in information and responding to it as he's working out his, his messaging, like, is he getting his feet under him as mayor? And is that what we're seeing? Or, or, or are we seeing him sort of, sort of create unforced errors and messaging problems? I think it's still early enough. So we could, you know, that we can kind of forgive a lot of what is a messaging issue. Um, I think, you know, he said it, it is, it is two things. It is both the perception of fear, but then also a real fear. You know, I, I tell people, look, I don't feel unsafe in the subway, but all it would take is a bad incident, you know, one bad incident for me to completely, like immediately change my perception on taking the subway of which I take every single day. But um, yeah, I think it's still early. I don't know. It's the first hundred days. I know that's when he said he's going to get a lot done, but it also is sort of the honeymoon period. Not that reporters are not being critical of him and looking at both the, the pace of his appointments, what he's saying, what he's doing. But for something like this, um, I guess we could toss it up as a flub or just, yeah, like a miscommunication or a misinterpretation of what he said even clearly. Cause I know a lot of the times when he says stuff, um, he does go back or it wasn't taken out of context, but yeah, I think it, I'll, I'll toss it up to a flub. To be fair, like all, all, all candidates say things are bad. This is really happening. And then if you are a winning candidate and it's your problem now, you say some of this is perception. Um, you know, like th th these are very natural dials to turn depending on your position. And then you're figuring out how to say that without overstating it. I think that with this particular issue, Adams is probably trying to touch on some of the nuance with how many, for instance, mentally ill people actually are violent, which is a really small percentage, how much crime there is in the subway. And that those statistics, those numbers are so difficult and so hard to kind of tell people about when you have to talk about all the different layers that are going on. Like, yes, crime is down. Yes, this is a small percentage, but also it's a very visible one. Also, it's a very dangerous one. And, um, the shorthand for that is like, it's a perception of fear. So I don't actually think that was a flub. Uh, I just think that it was too mm -hmm. quick without explanation. And I think him going back on that wasn't really him yeah. going back, but him just like um, uh, 
couching the discussion for another time. I mean, by the way, the the name of his health commissioner commissioner is Dr. Vasan. I don't think I said that earlier. Mm. Well, I think he's trying to have two conversations at once. He's trying to have a short-term and a long-term conversation. And he also, listen, the man is not stupid. So he's also trying to contextualize some of the nuance, but in a very kind of crude way where it's coming out. So he has, he's sort of backtracking, like there's an intent from what many of us hear. And it's like, okay, we get it. Like, let's be clear. The vast majority of neighborhoods in New York City are just fine. And some people are like afraid of crime that they're never going to see. They just see it on the TV and on the front page of the Post. So there is this perception that things are getting bad, but we're nowhere near 2,200 murders the way we thought. We're nowhere near the 70s and 80s. Like, settle down, people. And I think he's sort of low-key saying that, but then also saying, I respect what has happened. And I'm in, you know, it's his city now, as he keeps telling us. So he's also saying, I respect what has happened and like nobody should live in fear, obviously, because there are tons of Katie Honans in the world where it's like, they are on the subway every day. They must take the subway. There are no other options. And you can't have New Yorkers feeling like their their lifeline to the city is, is in danger. So to bring this home, um, what will be a pretty quick episode, uh, we should talk for a minute about uh, Alvin Bragg and uh, some of that tension between things that maybe have long-term benefits and the short-term is he put out a memo listing various crimes that uh, his office was not going to uh, prosecute. Uh, this got slammed uh, from the right-wing media, starting starting with the Post, queerly set Bragg back. He said he didn't mean for this to, to have been a press story the way it was. That wasn't the intent. It was a legal memo. That's not really so. Like He sent that memo out to his press list. Um, but clearly he didn't expect the, the sort of reception it received. And so before he's really settled into this job, and by the way, if there is a criminal case against Trump, that's going to be coming from his office, uh, before he's really settled in and started, started doing the job, the, the backlash for a guy who in the Democratic primary was a middle-of-the-field candidate, not one of the, the, the utmost uh, reformers or the decarceral candidates. Um, it's been a, a tremendous backlash as he's become the, the new face of uh, justice reform. And everything wrong with it, according to the uh, the right. I think lots of people outside of New York think the Manhattan DA is like the Attorney General of New York or something, like you know, the top law enforcement person. How, how did he end up in this position so quickly? What should he be doing to set himself right? And is this uh, are these serious problems, or, or or is this a a passing media cycle for him? You know, Harry, I think a few things. One. Alvin Bragg is a is a lawyer and not a politician. And I think he has to remember that this job is a political job. And so as with all people in these positions, you have to still campaign on your ideas. Even though he he's he's been consistent for a full year. It's like this is what I'm going to do on day one, week one. It's been on the website. Everyone had time to review it. Now that he's actually implementing it, you know, we see all this pearl clutching and he's going to have to essentially sell it to folks. I think also though, you know, political science literature clearly states that when black mayors come into power, before they even get sworn in, you know, black mayors are soft on crime. And so you have white residents of the city essentially saying the city is going to be un- unsafe because we have a black mayor. Well, you can't really have that narrative with Adams because Adams is of the police. And he is, in many ways, the anti-Dinkins, right? The anti-Adrian Fenty, the anti-Cory Booker. You know, he's not part of the Divine Nine. He's not part of, you know, any of these sort of Black historical elite institutions. He likes being this outsider working class mayor, as he said time and time again. So it seems as though Alvin Bragg is the proxy 
for this old school narrative that black mayors are soft on crime, as evidenced by the fact that he was on the front page of the Post and the Daily News for two weeks when it very well could and should have been Adams with the Adams family, Bernard and Phil Banks and Swagger and low skilled workers. I mean, the list goes on and on. If he were any other black mayor, he would have been on the front page of those tabloids. But because there's a wink and a smile with Eric Adams as one of us as the more conservative, moderate Democrat who happens to be black, then Alvin Bragg seems to be the straw man for all of these, I would argue, unwarranted, unfounded fears that the city is going to turn into total chaos with, you know, black folks and Latino children running amok, which is not the case. And so if you actually, I think there are a few things, some people who read the memo are just like, I can't believe it. It's like, well, you had a year to not believe it. And then there are other people who actually didn't read the memo. And so you have this nuanced conversation where you think about people in Harlem who voted for both Alvin Bragg and Eric Adams, right? These are people who are afraid of the cops and the robbers. Like, they, there has to be this more nuanced conversation that I think Al Bragg is trying to have, where it's like, let's not ruin a child's life for jumping a turnstile because his family doesn't have $500 when we know that a kid from Fordham or NYU or Columbia does the same or worse, and it's just fine because it's not a crime of poverty. And I think that he's really trying to attack some holistic issues that many people probably aren't ready for. I would just note that uh, Bragg got, I think, 25,000 more votes. They're different contests. One of them was a runoff and a city contest. Bragg's was technically a state contest, but that he did much better than Adams in Manhattan. Uh, Manhattan was the one borough Adams didn't win. He actually finished third there. And just, you know, if you count their support as your starting point, uh, Bragg is actually way up on him, which is an interesting dynamic as this plays out. And he also got 182,000 votes out of 219,000, 219,000. Yeah. He was, you know, he was endorsed by Zephyr Teachout, the leftiest of the lefty. So, I, I mean, he was moderate only because there were so many vocally left, left candidates. Um, I, I think his policies are really are smart. And I think that they they're worth a shot is basically, you know, we've never really seen what it is to play out. He was on here talking how he's going to use discretionary funds to build the kind of treatment plan in a mentally ill diversion court where we would see some of this, uh, some of these, you know, severely mentally ill people actually have more resources, not just homes, because some of them aren't homeless, but just, you know, it's, it's a smart plan and it's worth a try. And you know what? We'll see, uh, Right. what happened. Right. Cause we but, haven't tried anything before and what we have been doing clearly isn't working. Right. So I think, Bragg's strategy is having grown up in Harlem and seen him. He was there during the bad old days, right? He was there during the 2000 murders a year in New York. And so having that context and also recognizing that like minor sort of crimes of poverty should not destroy a person's life because ultimately that destroys a community as well. You're taking someone out of the community. So I, I think some of the coverage especially from the more conservative outlets, has been targeted to brag when in any other instance, in any other city, in any other time, it clearly would have been targeted to the mayor. But because the mayor is sort of in lockstep for the first time, we've never, like, I I ask our listeners, like, name a Black mayor who's kind of working class of a major city like Eric Adams. Like, we we don't typically elect those individuals, they they typically can't, typically can't build coalitions the way Adams did to get elected, uh, even if a city is majority Black, and we know New York is not. I mean, I, I think he's, uh, I think him and Adams are going to 
kind of line up and be more simpatico than than what we've seen in the first, you know, two weeks where there seems to be this like fake uh, pitting of them against each other, you know, and I I don't think that's really that real. And I don't think a lot of Alvin Bragg's policies are actually anti-cop, you know? Right. It'll be interesting to see what behind closed doors conversations occur, um, what performative conversations occur. But I think what both of them have been very consistent about is they have great respect for one another. I think the difference is, Adams is a much more astute politician because he's been in the game over two decades. And I think Alvin Bragg is in week three, officially, of being a real politician in this job and sort of recognizing that it's not, sadly, just about the work. It's about the marketing of ideas to the public so we can move past a perception conversation and get to the reality. And there we have it, folks. Week three of a new administration. It's a new New York, and it's, it's coming Eric in Adams, hot. New York, Alex. It's, Ad- it's, it's my Adams city. family, New York. My streets, <laughs> my kids, my snow, my trees, my schools. <laughs> Next week, we'll talk about Adams' use of the, the possessive, which I think bothers some and really ingratiates him to others. I think it's fascinating. I, I weirdly like it. I just, I like anyone who has like a bit, you know? <laughs> I feel like that's very New York, and I approve. Like if, as long as it's is, like a harmless bit, you know, it's a yeah. harmless bit. Uh, I, I'm going to refer to myself in the third person. These are my streets, say, da, da, da. If Alex Brooklyn starts talking about Alex Brooklyn, <laughs> <laughs> we have a problem. <laughs> All right, FAQ <laughs> listeners, thanks so much for tuning in, spending another week with us. Uh, check us out next week where we have another Gab Fest with the gang. FAQ. FAQ NYC is a production of Racket Media and a proud member of the Brickhouse Cooperative of Independent Journalists and Artists. We're headquartered at NYU's McSilver Institute for Poverty Policy and Research and recorded this week from the boroughs of Brooklyn, Manhattan, and Queens. Our executive producer is Alex Brooklyn, and Adam Kamara mixed and edited this episode. Be well, be safe, and we'll see you next week. <laughs> <laughs>